Hello, I'm Alex and this is the Northern Guides to Happiness. Welcome to episode 39 in this current series of the podcast. Thanks to everyone who's listened so far and welcome if you're just joining us. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with Chris and Kath. Hello. Good Hello, evening. Alex. Hello. Good evening. It's good late evening. outside, yeah. It is. Oh, it's, it's great when it gets to that point when you realise that it's not dark outside mm. anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Getting up in the morning yeah. and going to make a cup of coffee and you don't have to put the lights on to do it. Oh, yes. yes. Luxury. Yes. Summer's yes. coming. And all the crocuses are out and the daffodils are starting to poke through. So, yes, spring is on its way. How are we all doing? All right. Thank you. <laughs> You're right. No, grumpy. Grumpy. Oh, Kath. All right. Lay it out for us, Kath. What's... No, I, I just had a, a day where nobody wanted to play my games. So ah. um, so I've, I've taken, I brought my ball home. But, they, <laughs> but they, the high point after that, after sinking to the lows of nobody replying to my emails, is has been listening to Ed's interview. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not grumpy anymore. <laughs> Good. Well, that's the whole point of this podcast, isn't it? <laughs> Yay! That it makes people happy. I've had, I've had the, I've had the air defect. <laughs> great, great. Uh, I am absolutely exhausted today. Yeah. I've been on a massive bike ride all the way from North Tyneside to the land of oak and iron um, over wow. on Derwent side. So went all the way, did a sort of risk assessment ride for work. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that sounds very risky. <laughs> But it was really interesting. I've never, this this is going to sound shameful, I've never done that sort of Gateshead side of the river oh, yeah. route mm. all the way along sort of Dunstan States. And we then took the Newcastle um, route on the way back. And it just gives you a completely different perspective, doesn't it, of of the river and seeing things that you would normally see in a car or on a bus just seeing it from a slightly different angle. I loved mm. it. It was great. And the weather was great as well. We picked a good day for it. Uh, so, yeah, oh, that's what so. I've been doing today. Do you go, do you go past Gibbside that way or is it not quite the same? No, we stopped. No, we stopped before. If, if you keep going, you you hit Gibbside. But uh, no, we stopped before Gibbside. But yeah, Land of Oak and Iron was, was lovely. Some great coffee and mm. cake and mm-hmm. lots of activities going on. So it looked, it looked really good. Yeah, it's the first time I've sort of popped in. We used to live over there, that area. So it mm-hmm. was, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. very much the country. Yeah. Gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, years ago, did the um, coast to coast from Whitehaven. And I just remember that feeling of getting back to that, that whole kind of Durham Valley line sort of past concert and then just coming in. Nearly home. Like, yeah. Nearly there. Nearly <laughs> there. Hurt so much. <laughs> I look ridiculous in like I want to wear jeans again. <laughs> you said it, Chris, not me. I did. <laughs> On that note, shall we introduce this week's guest interview? Yes. Yes. Kath's already hinted at who we're talking to today, but it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Ed Waugh this week. Ed is a North East playwright who, alongside his writing partner, Trevor Wood, has written a number of highly successful plays, starting with Good to Firm in 2002, to Waiting for Gatto in 2005, Carrying David and Alf Ramsey Knew My Grandfather, to name but a few. His most recent work is War Bella, a story all about the Blythe Spartans football player Bella Ray and the World War I munitionettes. This is a fascinating listen, so I hope you enjoy it. But enough of me talking, here's Ed. Ed, a very warm welcome to the Northern Guide to Happiness podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. How are you? I'm all right and happiness to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started, before we go any further, perhaps you could just introduce yourself to the listeners. How would you describe yourself? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the clean version. Actually, okay. my 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 granddaughter uh, asked my wife what I did for a living, and um, and she's nearly six years old. And my wife said, "Oh, he's a he's a playwright. Granddad's a playwright." And she said, "So he hasn't got a proper job then." <laughs> 
Sure. <laughs> no, from sure. the mouth of babes. Oh, it is, yeah. <laughs> but my older one, my other one, my 10-year-old, she said, no, but Grandma writes plays and he, he does lots of writing in the office and things. So that's what I am. I'm a, a, a playwright. I've been a professional playwright for the last 20 years since I was... How old was I? We, we, we started Trevor Wood and I, who's now a, a, a writer of very, very popular fiction books. We started in 2002 with our first play, uh, Good to Firm. So, so we started writing. Um, we, start, we talked about uh, doing a play in 2001, in December 2001, and we started writing it in January and February 2002, and it was on at the Customs House in the June of 2002 that just doesn't happen now which you know mm-hmm. it, it was really uh, fortunate that we had uh, a fantastic asset like the customs house back then and we, we got a play on it was a big hit and that was it really you know people were saying when's the next one when's the next one and then we wrote in 2003 a play called dirty dustin which has never stopped touring the world uh, and it's coming up to 20 years that that, that premiered at the Customs House. So, it, yeah, and it's very, very funny. And it, it, as I say, it's been done all over the, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, Scotland, Ireland, where else, Spain. So it's, it's yeah, so that's basically what I do, despite what my <laughs> youngest granddaughter thinks. Uh, I, I actually do have to work for a living. Ah, damn. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet you I bet you enjoy it. Does does your work oh, bring you happiness? Oh, absolutely. I mean, sometimes very stressful because you don't know. You can write a play and you think, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. Or you can write a play and you think, well, I don't know how Russell, the, 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 the guy I work with, is a guy called Russell Floyd, and he directs all my own self-written plays now because Trev's now a, a top author. Uh, so I write, uh, written about six, oh, well, no, about ten plays on my own, uh, and the director I bring in is a guy called Russell Floyd, who was well known back in the day when he was in um, EastEnders and The Bill, and he's a, a top top actor, but he's also a, a, a brilliant director. So I just give him the things, and we work together brilliantly, and and I, I'm amazed at what he comes up with, to be honest. Because I think, how can you? How how did you get that? How did you do that? Because we did a play called Hadaway Harry, which was a, a one-person play, and it was a we put rowing on stage, and we don't have a boat or anything, and it's probably about twenty minutes of the most exhilarating theatre you've ever seen. And, and that's toured all over the region, went to London, and it sold out the Theatre Royal. Uh, and it's out again in June. But I didn't know how they were going to do that. I, I didn't know how Russell and Jamie Brown were going to do that. And as it is, it just it takes people's breath away. It's, it's an incredible piece of theatre. And, and like I say, I'm just the conduit. I just write this stuff. The other guys and the, the actors and the directors who put it on stage and make it the success it is, basically. So what inspired you then to become a playwright? Was it something that you'd always wanted to do? Was it a chance encounter? How did it come about? Well, I always, you see, I was brought up with sitcoms in the 1970s, classic, great sitcoms, and the 60s, that I can, I can still remember some of them. But the great sitcoms of the, of the 1970s, Porridge, The Likely Lads, MASH, you know, a whole host of others, uh, Rise and Damp. And I always wanted to write a sitcom. And unfortunately, Dick and Ian, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenier, uh, got me onto a course in about 1992. Uh, and I had an idea for, uh, and actually it was a Sunday morning football team. And I worked on it, but uh, unfortunately the idea uh, was set out. And we were in development with it, and somebody had sent the script to then develop it, and it, it appeared on television. In a similar guise, but... You know, you know somebody's taking your idea, so that that was a, that was it, and it was only about ten years later after I got to know Trev because we we went to journalist college together. We were older, so we travelled every day to Darlington from Newcastle, where Trev lives, and South Shields, where I live, and we just got to know each other really well in the journeys, and um, we just decided that we were going to write a play because neither of us had seen many plays, and what we had seen, we weren't impressed. So we thought we want to make people laugh, and that's what we did. 
good, as I say, good to firm, made people laugh, dirty dusting. And then we did Waiting for Gatto again, Waiting for Gatto. I think that came out in about, <laughs> yeah, you can tell, can't you? It's about the worst slimming club in the world. Um, that came out in about 2004, 2005. And that's still touring. That, that's done Australia, uh, New Zealand, Ireland's going out in Ireland next year. It was translated into Flemish. And it did a month in Belgium about four or five years ago. Wow. And they said, would you like to come over and see it? And we thought, well, we don't really speak Flemish. so. Uh, <laughs> but we went to New Zealand to see it. it. You know, we had a great time in New Zealand. It was fantastic. We treated like royalty there. And it's done well. It's toured the UK. And uh, it, it's still a, a, a cracking little play, you know. And it's done by lots of amateur groups. But the the problem is, Alex. The last two years has killed. I mean, I, I, I'm very, I'm very fortunate in the sense that you know I've got a bit of a reputation in the sense of we put, you know, I've done twenty odd plays, you know, and they've been. But I just feel so sorry for people who's who were on the brink of having plays on two years ago. And I know a friend of mine, she she was on the brink of having a play on. They'd done two years' work on it, and it's been cancelled now. Just gone, just like that, yeah. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And and young mm. actors as well, you know, what, what chance have young actors got when there's no work, when there was no work out there for them? So a lot of them have given up on their on their dreams of being actors because now they've got perhaps full-time work they say, well, why should I struggle at being an actor, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, I been, think... It's been a tough the, couple of years, hasn't it? And uh, Well, I, yeah, I think theatre's in a in a bad shape at the moment, really bad, especially at, especially at the grassroots level, and that's a worry. And what do you think can, can be done about that? I mean, you know, it's been... I've been getting out into into theatres for events over the last couple of months, so it, it does feel like it's it's starting to come back. But what do you think the sector well, needs? Are we going off slight on a slight tangent? But I think it's important yeah, yeah. to talk about. No, but that's but but it's it's it is important because you know the the theme of of, of your podcast is happiness, and I think there's nothing better than going to a theatre. And the whole experience. That's why I much prefer to write in films, to write in for, for television, for sitcoms or anything like that. Because you get the whole experience with uh, theatre. Not only as a writer, because, you know, you're involved with the rehearsals and you see how what you've written and what's in your, an idea comes to life. And, and, and the people who are on board uh, are living what you're living, you know, or, or what you've what you've written. And it's fantastic. But for the audience to go to the cinema, I love it when people go um, and have something to eat before and then they come and have a couple of drinks and then they come to the show and then they might go for a drink afterwards and, and, and it's friends who are perhaps friends for a long time come. Perhaps friends have, have meet each other at the theatre for the first time in a long time, bump into each other. Or, or people with a shared interest say, oh, come on, let's go. Like I, I, pl- I played football for a long time whatever it was, 30-odd years ago. Uh, no, 40 years ago. Uh, and, and so a group of my uh, friends who, so I, I, again, I haven't seen them for two years because of the COVID, they're coming as a group and it'll be lovely to see them and, and just to have a good time and to express themselves. So to, for me, it's the experience about having a really, really good time. And we're inclusive as well, you know. We we make sure that um, we don't overprice uh, and, and that if people can't afford it, nobody, to my knowledge, or if they approach me, would, would, not, would be excluded from any of my shows because of finance. It's what you were saying before as well. It's that, uh, you know, people might go for a drink beforehand or for a meal and then afterwards. It's that, you know, and obviously the last couple of years not having any of that. It's that knock-on effect, isn't it? It's that working together as an industry or different industries, I suppose, supporting each other to sort of provide provide entertainment and, ex- as you say, experiences and enjoyment for people. Absolutely. I mean, it depends on, it depends on what you go to the theatre for. I mean, if you wanted just to have a good laugh, basically, that's what it, that's brilliant belly laughs fantastic you know we supply them in dirty dust and waiting for gato and other players but the stuff that i've done on my own for the last five five or six years the likes of haraway harry which is about harry clasper who was the greatest the greatest sports person ever from the northeast i don't know if you've heard of harry 
I have. I think I came across him when I was working. I, I used to work at Tynanwyr Archives and Museums, and I think oh, right. yeah. your, your, I think your play must have been around. At, you know, at the time that I was working there, because the people were talking about it. So yes, I was aware of him. Yeah, uh, but, but tell, we did tell it. the listeners who don't, perhaps. Well, we did it. We did it at um, the Discovery Museum. We, what we wanted to do, Harry Clasper, first of all, was the greatest sportsman. He, he was the world champion in the Victorian era, especially the mid-Victorian era. Rowan was the sport of the working class. Football hadn't really, well, hadn't been invented until the, it became professional in the 1860s, 1870s. So the sports of the working class were walking, running and rowing. Uh, and especially being Rome, because you could have a bet, and, and and the area threw up local champions, and they were like the superstars. They were the Alan Shearers of their day. They were the the the, the sports person, uh, the the heroes, basically. And then at that particular juncture, towns and cities were coming into into being. So people started having a, a bit of a an identity, a city identity, and the Rose. It manifested in the Roars. So we had the great Geordie Roars, and, and, and the greatest was Harry, Harry Clasper. And he took his team of brothers down to London in 1845 and beat the, the arch rivals, the uh, Thamesmen. And again, the play goes into all of that. But what's so brilliant about Harry, it's not just that he was a fantastic rower, he was an innovator, he was a trainer, because he trained world champions. But he invented the boats that you see today. Right. In the Olympics and in the Oxbridge boat race, the very, very thin ones. He was laughed at at the time, but he invented it. This is an illiterate Durham miner, by the way. Mm. And that's, a, you know, it's another Geordie fantastic celebration. And you can tell when the play's on at the end, there's just this spontaneous applause and people getting to their feet. And partly that's because of, of Jamie Brown, who plays uh, Harry Clasper. And it's partly because of Russell's direction as well. But it's the story. And I keep saying this, you know, I'm just the conduit for these fantastic stories about forgotten working class Geordie heroes. Is that where you get your inspiration from? You know, you've mentioned there are a few plays which, which have a very sort of strong northeast connection. Is yeah. that where you draw your inspiration from? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were commissioned to write plays for Durham Gala Theatre. One of them was Alf Ramsey Knew My Grandfather, which was about the Durham Miners who won the first World Cup in 1909. And again, from West Auckland, I mean, they're not technically Geordies, but they're, they're our people. They yeah. were miners and they won, they were, you know, they went to Italy and won the first World Cup in 1909. And then the stuff Turin, uh, Juventus, in 1911 to win it for a second time, the stuffed Juventus 6 1. In Turin, and and this just isn't recorded. It's not in the schools, and and it's just so annoying, you know. But we did that play, and again, you couldn't get a ticket. And that transferred to the Theatre Royal in Newcastle. And again, it's lovely when, you know, a thousand people give give your work a standing ovation, and that makes me happy. It makes everybody happy, it's, you know, because <laughs> when people come to see something they really enjoy and get into and feel part of it. And the thing about these plays is that people actually feel they're on stage with the character. So that there's a lot of empathy there. You know, the, the, there's a lot of empathy and people go through a journey with them. And, and again, it's about, like you say, it's about happiness. It's about making people forget their worries for an hour and a half, two hours. And that's what theatre's about. That's what good theatre's about. Sometimes you sit and you think, oh, I wish this was over. Many a time. And it's and, and I tell you what, mostly it's when it, and some of the big productions as well. Uh, I saw one not recently and I thought, how on earth did this get made? It's shocking. But, you know, that's the... And then I see, then I see local... Um, Local producers producing plays, and I think, wow, this is the sort of stuff for peanuts in comparison to the big West End shows that tour. And I think this is what I want to watch. This is this means something to me. It actually means something, and that's what hopefully the plays do. We wrote a play about uh, the uh, the Lindisfarne Gospels were in Durham the first time about mm -hmm. ten years ago, or so. And, and Trev and I were asked if we would uh, write the play. And we said, well, look, we're not religious. And they said, no, no, that's what we don't want it to be, religious. What? We want it to be sort of funny. 
So we did a like a black adder crossed with uh, Monty Python, Love and it, it was again. It was a, a, a lot of people. The great thing about the plays, though, is that people come away and say, "Well, I didn't know that. I learned so much today, and that's important." So they're having a good laugh. They're being entertained, and and they're learning things as well. You know. So as far as all of the plays that you've done so far, have there been any kind of standout happy moments for you? Um, you've, you've mentioned a few, you know, the Harry Clasper story and, and yeah. the standing ovations and, and things like that, yeah. but any particular standout moments? Well, there's standout moments in every play because what you do is you put your set pieces in. The, 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 I mean, I'm not saying how people should write. If people ask me how I write, what we do, or what I, what I do is I, I plant bombs in the first not not physically um, <laughs> I, I plant sort of bombs if you like comedy bombs or, or or plot bombs in the first half but they've got to be interesting so you put them in and then in the second half they explode into laughter or, or into or, or it's because you see I, I, you have to have a situation where you have high laughter and then you can if you have high laughter you can bring it right down and you can get into detail and you can get into sort of what would be called sadness and then you can move it up. Drama's got to be ups and downs, ups and downs. You can't have a play where every other line is is funny. It's just that people get bored it's with too that. too much, yes, yes. So it's got to have drama and it's got to have character and people have always got to be finding out about these characters. So every line that you're doing is leading to something else about this these people's characters or pushing the plot on or things. I mean, it sounds a bit bloody intellectual, that, but it's not really. It's it's pretty basic. Once you start writing, and 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 then you look back and take a, a step back and say, "Oh, we need to do X, Y, Z," and put it in there. So if you come up with an idea uh, for the second half, you have to go back to the first half and say, "Right, how can we introduce that in the first half so it, you know, inverted commas, explodes in the second half." It's a bit like life, really. If you think about it, you, you can't be happy all the time. You have to experience Absolutely. life's lows as well to then be able to appreciate and enjoy the ha- the highs, the happiness. So I suppose it's, it's similar to real life. Yeah, Absolutely. It's not until you've had the lows that you appreciate the highs. They're two sides of the, the same coin, to be honest. And so that's what's important. And so, you, you know, you're mentioning about, well, you asked about um, uh, uh, plays and things. And you always know there's moments where the audience are going to either be in hysterics, which is lovely, because you know that's going to happen. Mind you, there's sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it depends on the audience. Uh, there's sometimes where you think, right, this is going to be, this is going to be a woofer, you know, a big one. Nothing. Absolutely oh, no. nothing. It depends on the audience, to <laughs> yeah. be honest, you know. Yeah. Uh, but then other times it's a woofer, you know. Uh, but sometimes people are laughing. You get this. You get like for instance, we did Carrie and David, and that was uh, that was both that was my last play, and we toured it about whatever it was. I mean, <laughs> COVID after just lost sense of time and Alex. Absolutely. Right? No, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we um, we toured it in the northeast whenever it was 2019, say, and it did great. And then we went to New, uh, New um, Northern Ireland and did really well. Did really well again. Stand evasions everywhere. Mickey Cochran played um, Glenn McCrory, and it wasn't Glenn McCrory was the first uh, Jordy boxing champion in 1989. In fact, he's the only Jordy uh, world champion boxer. But it wasn't a rocky play. It, it it had all the elements of rocky. A guy being ripped off, a guy from, you know, a, a poor background and things like that. What made this special was because of Glenn's brother David. Hence the term carrying David. He was terminally ill, and Glenn was carrying David on his back physically mm. uh, since from the age of about eight. But it was mm. also mental as well. When Glenn was getting ripped off by boxing promoters and he was absolutely at his lowest point. It was David on his shoulder who was saying, why are you giving up? Why are you giving up? Mm-hmm. I'm terminally ill. I'm fighting this and you're giving up. And it's, and, and that play brings people to tears. It's a, it's just a phenomenal, uh, again, a phenomenal story and again, I'm just the conduit to that because of, of Glenn's story, because of Glenn's life. 
Great guy, by the way, because of um, Mickey Cochran's acting and because of Russell's direction. It is an absolute uh, fantastic piece of theatre. And it was going to be... Ah, this is frustrating. Now, this is frustrating. It was going to be transferring to Newcastle Theatre Royal. And it was going to be the fastest transfer ever at Newcastle Theatre Royal. It was due to go on uh, two years ago. Uh, yeah, two years ago, this... Uh, in April, two years ago in April, coming up, so nearly exactly two years ago. But then, you know what happened, uh, and it never went on, and um, because of COVID, so we had to pull twenty five thousand leaflets, hundreds of hundreds Aww. of posters, and you know dozens and dozens of banners, and all the work that we'd done in London because it was going to London uh, as an out of town run before it came to the Theatre Royal. So, again, we've done three or four visits to London to press and media and things like that. So all of that, we lost all of that. Anyway... Oh, it must have been heartbreaking. Well, it was, but, you know, you, you, but again, you look around and we're in COVID and people were dying, Alex, right? Yeah, so yeah. you put it into perspective, you know, you have yeah. to put it into perspective. So anyway, last September, Mickey Cochran says, um, I would like to tour uh, Carrie and David. I just said to him, look, fill your boots, fill your boots, get on with it. And Mickey toured it around the region and uh, he toured it to London as well. And again, stand evasions, every single performance. Again, it's, it's, it's what it is. But the story, it's a long way around to tell you the story. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey took it to the Tyne Theatre in Newcastle. And there's three, four hundred people in there. But it's the same night as Newcastle are playing Leeds. And there's a hold-up. There's been an accident or something, and there's a massive hold-up. So the fans are coming in. 50,000 fans are coming in. We've got um, Carrie and David on in the centre of Newcastle. Come 20 to 8, only half the audience are there. So they had to put an announcement. Again, I've never witnessed anything like this. Normally people are angry that things are delayed and they're getting impatient. And they'd had a few drinks beforehand. They were at the Tyne Theatre. And it's, again, it's a reflection of our fantastic audience. When the announcement came saying, at about quarter to eight, saying, look, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to delay this for 15 minutes. But the bar's open. There was no whinging. Everybody just cheered. <laughs> Everybody stormed <laughs> off to the bar. It was incredible. They came back at eight o'clock. And, and I'm not kidding. It was like watching Dirty Dustin. They were just going ballistic. It was so funny. It was great. It was a, a great performance. But the, the, they were laughing all the way through, which, and you think to yourself, well, they shouldn't be doing that. You know, they shouldn't be doing that. But, you know, people wanted to have a good time. And it was in COVID as well. It was, it was in the... And, and I just think people, perhaps for many people, it was the first time that they'd been out... Yeah. And they just wanted to have a bloody good time. Just wanted to be out, yes. They just wanted and to have a good time, yeah. Yeah, and you were talking there about perspective and actually, yeah, if we're going to wait another 15 minutes in yeah, the grand yeah. scheme of life, uh, exactly. 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And they're going to have absolutely. a drink. That's what they were. <laughs> <laughs> Pay £5 for a pint of lager. I, well, I wouldn't share it that, but there you go. There you go. So nobody, nobody checked the calendar then when they were setting that date. <laughs> Well, things are set along before. I mean, I think Mickey was doing this about three, three, four months beforehand. Oh, it was before him. the football, or it might have been rescheduled to a Friday night because of television. You see, yeah. uh, that's the way things are with football now. But, but anyway, that was the that. So it's, it's so many highs. It's incredible, you know. It's really incredible. And and again, um, Mickey seems to be confident that um, Carrie and David's going to be out and touring next year. He went to the Theatre Royal last week. And they want to put it on uh, sometime really? later on in the later on in the year. I don't know if that's official or anything. I'm just saying, you know, that that's uh, potentially it could be part of a tour going to Newcastle Theatre Royal, which would be fantastic. It is. It's a, it's a fabulous piece. It's a great story. It's a, I'll have a to fabulous keep an eye story. Out for that one, definitely. Yeah. So uh, almost as if we planned it. This segue then. So football. Um, yeah, and uh, what you're currently working on? Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the current project? 
Well, yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 initially the idea was to, to have done a, a play about um, Mary Lyons, who was the youngest England footballer ever. She was only 15 and she was from Jarrow and she led her team to the uh, Munitionettes Cup in 1919. But I, 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 that wasn't, I, I didn't feel as though I could take that where I wanted it to. And I actually went to speak in Blythe about uh, Curry and David about three, whatever, two and a half years ago. The the guy there, uh, the Gordon Smith, who's a, a historian, he came up after I'd spoken on women's football and gave me all of his um, research on uh, Blythe Spartans, mm-hmm. and it was incredible. It was it was just incredible what he what he gave me, and I thought. Well, this is the story. Bella raised the story, and and that's where it's that's where it uh, developed. And and I I spoke to the Blythe Phoenix Theatre, and they were well up for it. Blythe Spartans were well up for it. Port of Blythe were well up for it. I mean, it's just it's incredible. The 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 Blythe Battery, which is the First World War Museum, the support was just incredible because it's a celebration of Blythe, you know. And it makes everything just happy, makes people in Blythe happy. And um, that's what the whole idea was, to celebrate Blythe and to get into the schools and things. And so we we set up a bit of a tour, thanks to uh, the Arts Council, we set up a bit of a a, a tour. And with a historian called Peter uh, Sauger, we've been into schools, so we've done lots of schools and and, uh, spent two or three days in schools. We've done dozens and dozens of talks. We've had events on, and we've spoken to thousands and thousands of people. It's been an incredible, incredible experience, and it it really is about these heroic women. Again, people didn't know that uh, women played football during the First World War. I mean, I know you did because you you were involved a few years ago, weren't you? Yes, yes. I I did a project a few years ago around the hundredth anniversary of of the First World War, and I worked with uh, Turnside Women's Health in Newcastle, and we did a project all around women and their role during the First World War. And we we just yeah we came across the, the munitionettes and the, the football teams associated with with them. But um, but yeah, as you say, I know a lot of people have no idea about women's football and how popular it was, and of course it then. Was was banned after the First World War, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a, it's shocking what happened to these women. They, they were playing. There was hundreds of teams formed throughout up and down the length and breadth of the country, and and a lot of them in the northeast. You know, there was there, there was dozens and dozens. But what marked the northeast um, from from a different perspective was that we had a cup presented by a businessman called Alfred Wood from Sunland. And what he wanted was the teams in the northeast to play and to play for the cup. So the teams from the um, south of the region, from as far as Skinningate in North Yorkshire, Middlesbrough, Hartlepool, Darlington, uh, they played in a knockout competition to find their best team, and that was Bocklow Vaughan, a steel mills from uh, Middlesbrough. And the teams from the north of the region, Sunderland, Tyneside and, and um, Bly Spartans and Northumberland, uh, they played a knockout, and Bly Spartans were our representatives from the north of the region. And those two teams played each other at St James's Park in March 1918, and 18,000 people turned up to watch. You know, it's just incredible, isn't it? But even on route to that, there was thousands of people coming to watch the games. Thousands, you know, in some cases 10,000, some cases three, four, five. The average gate at Bly Spartans was 4,000. Bly Spartans today don't get that. I know they would if they had another cup run, but, you know, <laughs> on day-to-day, they don't get that. So far. But it's not just about the women who play football. It's about the conditions of women the social conditions of women, that was so important. Because prior to the First World War, nearly 50% of women in this area, they went into domestic servitude. And they got five shillings um, a week. And they worked uh, two weeks on, but with one day off. Whereas when the women went into the munitions factories in the First World War, 
they were paid two shillings, two pounds, two shillings. Now, some of you listeners might not know what two... That made us very happy when I was a kid. <laughs> two pounds, two shillings, I tell you, you could buy lots of sweeties with them. But back in 1917, 1918, that was a lot of money. And for the first time in history, young women, especially single women, uh, had money in their pockets. Mm. You know, they had their haircuts as they wanted. They got involved in fashion. And they did things that their parents and their, their mothers and their grandmothers never even thought about. Yeah. And it caused tongues wagging, I tell you, it caused some real, you know, because it, the, the role of a woman before the First World War, and even after to a degree, uh, because of government propaganda, uh, was that women should um, be children machines. They shouldn't, have a, they shouldn't have jobs, or if they did have jobs, or working in shops, or working in uh, millinery factories, or things like that, then as soon as they got married, they had to leave their jobs and have kids. And, and then there were, you know, it was the men who decided how much they got to look after the household and things like that. So it was a pretty um, bad role for women. It was terrible. But this 18 months in the First World War was revolutionary, absolutely revolutionary up to the armistice and. November 1918, where women had money in their pockets. And they didn't take, you know, they were playing football, they were wearing shorts above their knees. I mean, that was, you know, remember 20 years earlier, they were covering piano legs up, you know, so <laughs> so men didn't, you know, to, 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 so that men's carnal lust and desires weren't stimulated. So it was revolutionary. And, and, and you know, they played football despite the fact that some of them were locked in their bedrooms by their fathers because they didn't want them to play football. They were supposedly debasing themselves. Yeah, it was, a, it was a time where women actually came out of the kitchen, so to speak, especially young women. But the tragedy is that when armistice, when the armistice was called, these women who had saved the war effort were made redundant. Yeah. It's just... Back it's, to the kitchen sink. I was... It, I, I just... I, I get so annoyed, right? But the other thing... And, you know, you were involved in the, the war, First World War, commemorations. I wouldn't say celebrations, yeah. I'd say commemorations. Yeah. These women worked 60 hours a week, still played football to raise money for uh, wartime charities. And yet, when it came to the election, a month after the armistice in December 1918, working-class women weren't given the vote. It was middle-class women. Only 40% of women got the vote. And that's what that's what frustrated me about the First World War celebrations because it was the middle-class women who got the vote. The women who had saved the, actually saved the war effort never got the vote until 1929. Yeah. And even then, there had to be, you know, until 1929. And I just... That was not recorded or very rarely recorded by you know, the mainstream media. And it's a, to me, it's another reflection that working-class history is not taught in schools. I mean, I you know, you look at it, all of these women, these million or so munitionettes, there was a million munitionettes of women working at the end of the war. And don't forget, there would have been a turnover of munitionettes as well. So you're talking about millions of women who would work to save the war effort. There's not one war memorial to, or, or contemporary war memorial to these women. Not one. Not a single contemporary war memorial. I mean, what does that say? How we, how we treat women? I'm going to say we, we found it so hard on, on our project to find information because just the nature of historical recording... They didn't bother. It wasn't important, was it? Absolutely, um, absolutely. So you know, you, you, we have these wonderful photographs of of women working in factories, but you've got no idea who these women are. There's no record of their names, you know, what they did, who they were. There's just nothing written, and we we found it really hard to um to f to find any information really. Absolutely spot on. Alex. That's why, for instance, we've done stuff in schools, work in schools, being fantastic what Peter's done, the work Peter's done. And to me, um, I mean, we're producing the play as a book that we're going to sell at the at the shows. So instead of producing a programme for £3, we're producing a programme that includes the, the play for £5. And because we're going to give lots of them to schools, because we, we need we need schools to actually take this up and to educate the next generation. And in the introduction to the book, I actually make the point: it's, it would be more important for working class kids to learn about what their great and great grandmothers did than decadent kings and queens. 
So we're trying a little bit, a little way of, of jewelry culture, basically, of trying to keep alive the fantastic stories that are out there. I mean, when Harry Clasper died, yeah, we'll put it into perspective. When Harry Clasper died, you know the row I, I talked about before? Yes. Yeah. When he died in 1870, from his pub where he died, at the mouth of the river of the Ooseburn that feeds into the Theatre Royal, they took him up City Road, down past the Theatre Royal, down to the quayside. They took him over to the other side of, of the Tyne and then up to Wickham. And they reckon 130,000 people lined his route. 130,000 people, you know, Alex. And that was when the population of Newcastle was 112,000. And yet it's forgotten. It's not even mentioned in education. Is happiness well-being? I mean, I, I don't ask a stupid question. I, I presume your work makes you, you happy uh, doing what you do. But is it something that you think much about, happiness? Only when I'm miserable. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate because you're constantly thinking about work, you know, constantly. But you have other interests as well. You know, I, mm. I, I like I, I love reading. I like football, I like horse racing. Go well, go on the race. I don't, I don't bet or anything, but I like going to horse, going to the watch the horses, and I like socialising with friends. So, and having a few beers and going for a curry. It's pretty limited, but it makes me happy, you know. And, and walking, we go walking all the time, and going up to Northumberland and and finding new walks. That makes me really happy, and obviously spending time with my family and especially the grandchildren. So yes, I, you know, a lot of things make me happy, but <laughs> it's it's not all plain sailing, you know, because you you were you're worrying because if you don't sell if you're not selling enough tickets, you know, how are you going to pay for that? But you can have one catastrophe. And that wipes out all your work. That's it. You're finished, you know. And it's hard to switch off as well, isn't it, I think, when you work for yourself, do your own thing. You know, you can never truly ever switch off, can you? Absolutely. And you're always working. I mean, you know, your work times are... I mean, I tend to get up now at half past five, six... In the not in not not at night not at night <laughs> in the morning and I, and I do work and and it's really good you've done you know five or six hours by uh, lunchtime and when I can be bothered when it's nicer weather I will go up because I live in South Shields so we only live about half a mile from the mouth of the Tyne and and uh, on the beach. So it's fabulous. I mean that was a lifesaver during COVID. We were walking the beach every single day. But it, it, it struck me, no matter what time we got up in the morning, when it got lighter, so we'd sometimes go out at half past five. There was always footprints in the sand of somebody there before <laughs> you, you know. And there's always dog walkers, so you're never the first person uh, yeah, on the beach. Yeah. And it's lovely, you know. You just It's just great. So, yeah, there's a lot to be happy about. There's a lot to smile about. But I, I do worry about... Um, uh, you know, we're quite fortunate in the sense that, you know, we do, uh, my wife and I have got incomes, but I do worry about this cost of living and, and what's going to happen to people. I worry about young people who can't afford a mortgage, who can't even afford the rent now because of the rip-offs. I, I, that's a major, I don't worry so much about for me, but I do worry about the younger generation because I, I want to live in a, a harmonious society. I don't want mm -hmm. electric fences around people's houses. I don't want that. I don't want segregation based on class. And I think what we're getting now is a struggle based on class, basically, now. I mean, I, I, I find food banks abhorrent in a society where people can spend millions on paintings and hundreds of thousands on cars and working people have to use food banks that makes me really unhappy because i don't think that's good good for society we talked to bill corcoran who was involved well, I know bill, in yeah. yeah do you know bill yeah, yes. I know bill. Everyone, I agree, everyone everyone knows bill yeah. it seems yeah <laughs> but we talked to him um sort of early on in the in the podcast about how he was involved in setting up the the nufc food bank and he was saying actually what would make me really happy is if these things didn't have to exist. 100%. Um, 100%. You know, I'm not, yeah. I wasn't having to go to food banks, what I'm saying. No, 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 what, absolutely. What I'm saying they, is, they are needed, uh, but they absolutely, shouldn't be needed. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And I know Bill and the NUFC guys do, uh, lads and lasses do a fantastic job. Absolutely brilliant job. 
Yeah, but they shouldn't exist in this day and age. Oh, I think. absolutely all, not. Uh, yeah, absolutely all in not. Agreement. It, it's frustrating, you know. It's absolutely frustrating. What is happiness to you then? How how do you know when you're happy? How do you know when you're happy? You know, when you're talking about all of the, you know, all, yeah. of, the, all of this awful stuff that's going on. But how do you know when you're happy? When people around me are happy, that's the most important thing for me. When somebody around me is unhappy, I'm unhappy. When they're happy, I can be happy. That's the sort of gateway for my happiness, that friends and family uh, are happy and that they've been successful. I love it when people... I mean, I'm fortunate to work with great people. And, and my attitude... I'm, I like... <laughs> yeah. I, I was brought up in the 70s, so I was a punk, you know. I was uh, I was uh, the Clash are the only band for me, basically. Well, not the only band, but the main band. And, you know, the, the Clash just did it themselves. They never sold out. They never sold out. And um, they did it, and, this, and their attitude was do it yourself, do it yourself. And that's always been my attitude. So I, I just get on and, and do what I have to do. And I like to think my attitude has rubbed off on people around me to say, look, well, we'll not wait for anybody else. We'll just do it ourselves. Like Mickey, who did Carrie and David, yes. a recent example. Yes. So so for me, it's rubbing off one's enthusiasm for the project that you're doing on other people. And when you see them succeeding, it's fantastic. And when you see other people succeeding who have taken an idea and they're even putting it on in pubs or whatever, and, and it's getting a great response... And they're employing people and people are coming along and being part of that. That is fantastic. That makes me really happy. That makes me happy. People giving it a go, having a go. And it mightn't be the best thing in the world, but people having a go. That makes me happy as well. I write for Sunday for Sammy and we would, we've now, well, we did until COVID got it up, to, we went from the city hall up to 10,000 people coming to see the show at the arena. And it's jury comedy, jury music. It's a jury occasion. And that makes me really happy to see 10,000 people loving every second and having a great time. That that makes me happy, mm. you know. Mm. And obviously, you know, other things make me happy that aren't just northeast. you know, a lot of things. But they're, they're the things that make me happy. They all sound pretty good to me, I have to say. I think we're coming to the end of the interview uh, now, Ed. But I sort of ask people, how how do they sort of maintain positive mental health and well-being? You know, if you were to sort of give a little tip, a little bit of advice to people listening, how, how do you maintain your well-being? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I'm I'm not qualified with mental health or anything like that, and 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 I know people who suffer from um, depression times, and the last thing they need is people to give them advice and to say, "Oh, cheer up, man! You know it's not the end of the world. It's terrible, lad. It's absolutely terrible." The only thing I would sort of say is have things to focus on um mm-hmm. just have things to nice things to focus on things to look forward to and focus on that's that's the important thing and it mightn't be something really big it might just be it might just be going for a 6 mile walk and looking at the sea and and, and admiring the beauty and and being aware of things like at the moment at the moment what covid did for me more than anything it's made me aware of the seasons. Mm. And when we were walking, you saw the changes. And what's making me really, really happy at the moment is seeing the crocuses out. <gasps> oh, yes, yes. And, and seeing snowdrops. Yeah. And, 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 and my parents, I was brought up in Gosforth on the Grange Estate. And my parents used to live there. My dad died a, a month or so ago. But I used to go to Gosforth, and what really made me happy was the Golden Mile from Newcastle to Gosforth, the Golden Mile of, of daffodils. Oh, mm-hmm. that just, it's, you know, I'm getting tingles up my spine now, and that's about to happen. And it, even from a young boy, uh, we used to go to the races because it was a it was a family event going to the races. You'd have a picnic, and and it's the colours, it's the art of it. I love the horses, the the beauty of it, absolutely beautiful. And we'd go to the races and we'd have a picnic on on and, uh, but we'd walk. We'd have to, we'd walk down. To, I don't know if you've been Alex in uh, Gosworth Park, 
Mm-hmm. But when you walk from the Brunton Park side or whatever side that is, and you walk down in June, all of the rhododendrons are out, and the the colour, the colours and arch again, it just it takes your breath away. It's it's just Lips beautiful. It's nature, you know. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And they're the things Wonderful. that mean things to me, you know. The the because of my well, because of things that have happened, um, mm-hmm. and you sort of try and. Even little, like I say, little things, you focus on that. So, you know, I'm looking forward, really looking forward to seeing the, uh, no, I was going to say dandelions. The, 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 <laughs> They're not so bad as well, the, but yeah, daffodils, daffodils are a bit better. I'm really looking, I'm really, you know, I am really, really looking forward to yeah. that because it's, yeah. it's beautiful yeah. and it reminds me of my youth and, 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 and happy times, you know. Yeah, yeah, wonderful, thank you. And what would you advise people who are perhaps thinking of getting into writing, whether that's for, for, for plays, for screenplays, for, for books, how would you advise people who are sort of wanting to get started? Well, it's, it's to learn, basically. You know, you can't, ju- I mean, some people do. Trev and I did. We, you know, never written a play. But we had two, there was two of us uh, when we wrote um, Got the Firm. Uh, so we, we were really lucky. But for most people... Uh, if you're if you're writing on your own, it's a difficult task. So what I would do is I would uh, urge them to buy my book of plays. <laughs> okay, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Go for it. <laughs> uh, well, there's a book of plays out of the, of Hathaway Harry, um, Carrie and Dave and the Great Joe Wilson. And I was really chuffed because um, Newcastle Cathedral have just been done out. They, they've put a um, what do you call these time time capsule. A time ca- the podcasters in that that time capsule. They they asked for our, uh, copies of our episodes. Did they to go in the time capsule? Yes. Oh, so we're, brilliant! We're, we're in there. We're in there together. Oh, we're in eternity <laughs> together. Well, I tell you what, right? We're in a hundred years' time when they open that casket. We'll, They'd be like, what on earth we'll, was going on in Newcastle? Well, what, I, what we'll do is we'll go for a, a drink for us and when we'll go to the opening, all right? In 100 years' time, all right? Then. All right? Sounds like a plan. A Sounds plan. like a plan. Yeah. I'll, I'll be there. Good on you. Good on you. <laughs> so that was, so that, yeah, but what I'm saying is not just, I'm just saying my book, that was just to give it a plug, uh, but to read books, you know, and to have a look. And I always say to people, who's your audience? Because the most important thing about writing is who's your audience. If you don't know who yeah. your audience is, you, you, what's the point in writing? And, and, you know, we straight away when started doing this was ours is a, a sort of intelligent working class audience. And that's why we get thousands coming to see the shows, you know, who will read and discuss with you and talk to you. So the most important thing is going to see shows. I'm not just saying come and see our War Bella, which is touring in three weeks time and, and things like that. I'm not just saying that. But come and see the place and get an idea. Steal ideas. Writers or mad pies, mm. nick ideas if you think, oh, that's a good idea, nick it. <laughs> that's what it's about, you know. If it ain't broke. The, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, and talk to people. And, and I mean, that, that's the most important thing, going along to writer's circles or, or coming and seeing plays and, and, and writing things. That's the, You must write, you must know who your audience is and you've got to start writing. Wonderful, great advice there, Ed. And you've already kind of uh, given it a plug, but how can people find out more about Warbella? Eee, you know, I wasn't going to mention Warbella until you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a one-woman play, and it stars um, Lauren Wayne, who's a fabulous actress, fabulous actress. And um, she's playing Warbella, she's playing Bella Ray. And it, it's it, the, the whole of that period is seen through the eyes of Bella Ray. And uh, she's been directed by Russell. They actually started rehearsals today. And it's opening at Blythe, obviously, at Blythe Phoenix on um, Friday the 25th of March. So it's doing at 2.30 or 7.30. And then it's on Saturday at 7.30, the 26th of March. And then it goes to um, uh, Hexham on the 28th. The Theatre Royal on the uh, 29th and 30th. But the three shows at the Theatre Royal uh, uh, Studio, studio, they're all sold out. They sold out within a day or two. Uh, and then on Thursday the 31st, it's in Annick. And then on April the 1st, it's at the Playhouse Whitley Bay. And on Saturday the 2nd, it's at the West Orvin Theatre in South Shields. Uh, so, but the, it's best if people want to read about it, go on to the website, www.warbella.com. 
www.ghostbusters.co.uk and all the dates and times and everything are on there fantastic well done i'm impressed you remembered all those dates (laughs) (laughs) it's in green it's in green yeah yeah (laughs) well thank you so much for your time today ed it's been an absolute pleasure finding out more about yourself about your 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 script writing and yeah and and warbella and i hope it, it sells out and everyone goes and sees it and has a wonderful time and yeah thank you so much thanks alex appreciate it that was ed what did people think i i thought that was great i think we've already spoiled the fact that it was going to be a good one uh before the interview so that's fine um yeah no i, I i'm a real fan of a bad pun so waiting for gatto for yes. me just made my day thank you ed and trevor that's just that's just a bit of classic right there i oh so much to like about that this whole kind of exploration of the theatre and everybody kind of piling into a theatre and having a great time and sort of seeing all these stories. And um, it's kind of easy to see why people get so passionate about, you know, working in the theatre or even just kind of just kind of going, just kind of made me feel like I don't go enough. I really should go more. There's so much great stuff happening in Tyneside. Um, but the other thing which kind of got me was when he was talking, I, just, I had no idea that he sort of came from the part of Newcastle that, uh, that I'm in at the moment, which is like, oh, that's kind of nice. Yeah, um, and he was yeah. talking about the, the Golden Mile and the daffodils. And I've never noticed that before. So I'm, I'm definitely going to go out and check it just to kind it's of... It's the right time of year now, isn't it? Yeah, it keep an right eye out. Yeah. Mm. But I love, mm. I love that whole, you know, when, when things start to kind of bloom and come back after sort of a long winter. So it's, uh, that's sort of making my heart feel warm at the moment. So thank you, Ed, for reminding me about all that. Yeah, thanks, Chris. What about you, Kath? It was wonderful. It was the flow, I think, as much as anything else. He, he just got the concept immediately and then turned everything that he's done into a, a superb response to the question. Really. Yeah, yes. And with Chris, I think, the, um, the gato, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yep. I had to Google that. To, sorry, Ed. <laughs> had to google that to make sure that i'd heard it properly <laughs> waiting for gato was superb he, he really brought home this idea of if you look not too hard for a story you'll find something absolutely magnificent and i'd heard about the munitionettes and i've seen photographs of them but when you twist it to warbella it's totally different isn't it yeah. Um, and I had a conversation shortly after that, quite non-related, but the role of uh, the role of women in the past came into it, and it's it did it brought it home how unfairly they'd all been treated, not in in a, a work perspective, and then the sporting perspective just continued until within within the last few years, really. I think to get some sort of uh, credibility for it is disgraceful. Mm. It, it makes you wonder how successful women's football would be now if it hadn't been banned back then. Because I think the ban was in place, I think, till quite late on, till I think the sort of 1960s, 70s. And you kind of just, just wonder where where would the sport be now in mm. 2022 if, if that hadn't happened. But, um, yeah, it was a I love that conversation. And of course, I. I I'd kind of done a little bit of research around it, you know, through through a previous project that that, that we've we've done as an organisation with with Tyneside Women's Health. So, uh, yeah, it's it's great to have these stories out uh, in in the public the public domain for people to to learn about and find out more about. Um, I loved how uh, when when he talked about his his plays going into the the time capsule as oh, well. That was great. <laughs> so we've made a date in a hundred years time we're going to catch up and uh see how uh see how that pans out so uh (laughs) save me a seat yeah absolutely yeah anything else kath oh yeah i just just really relaxed into listening to it so it was a very pleasurable interview to listen to and the comments that he made at the end about, about walking and the family and uh it 
kind of drew everything together over the past few episodes that we've had the similarities mm. and I'd never ever heard of the Golden Mile I'm sorry but I think I'll have to hoof it up to Gosforth and have a look for the Golden Mile yep. yeah. and it got you out of a grumpy mood Kath so it did, yeah. it did. so thank you so much Ed for that yes that's a huge plus <laughs> so thank you both of you and thank you Ed if you've been inspired by this podcast episode then we'd love to hear from you we love hearing your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thenorthernguidestohappiness.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at North Happiness and Instagram and Facebook at Northern Happiness. We're really glad to be spreading joy and happiness around the North East through this podcast, thanks to funding from the National Lottery Community Fund and the Newcastle Covid Fund. So thank you so much to our funders for their support. I should also say that we've still got some great workshop events coming up over the next few weeks, including a stadium tour of St. James's Park. We've still got a few tickets left for that. A writing workshop with Chris Ord at Whitley Bay Library. A nature walk with Steve Lowe and forest bathing with Pearl Saddington at Gibside. So check out our socials for details of those. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Northern Guide to Happiness. Take care and see you all again next week for another episode. Thank you.